Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Uh, I'm your host, Julia Kablinska, and today it is my pleasure to be with uh, Igu, who is currently an associate professor at the University of Toronto, who teaches undergraduate courses on modern and contemporary Asian art, lens-based media in Asia, public art, and art and digital culture in the Department of Arts, Culture, and Media, um, but is also affiliated with and works with graduate students in the Department of Art History and East Asian Studies. Um, so, E, instead of me telling folks about you, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to this field and how uh, you position yourself as an art historian and ultimately how the project we're about to talk about, your book, Chinese Ways of Seeing, came to be. Thank you, Julia. It's really a pleasure to be here to have this uh, dialogue. Um, so this is, as you know, my first um, book lens project, and it is a uh, um, uh, an evolution from my dissertation. Um, it might be a long story to talk about my uh, background. So initially, I was a, a pre-modernist, actually. Um, my training, my initial uh, dissertation topic was Song Dynasty painting. However, um, I guess I belong to, I, I was very privileged to belong to the generations of PhD students who did not have to finish their PhD training within five or six years. So it was still possible for me to shift the fields rather late in my uh, uh, PhD training. Um, I took a seminar on photography and was absolutely fascinated by the media and also um, kind of a little bit stunned. That was the early uh, mid uh, 2000s and there were still I guess less than a handful um, of books and the devoted publications on uh, Chinese photography in the English language um, uh, scholarly field. So I became really interested in uh, photography and uh, kind of shifted drastically um, my uh, research interest. So my initial dissertation topic was um, <laughs> the, uh, the relationship between photography and uh, traditional Chinese style painting. Um, and as you can see, it, it evolved greatly, partly because um, it didn't take long for me to realize um, any discussion on that juncture of art and visual culture, um, xieshen, um, open air painting, or um, a sketching from, uh, uh, or sketching, um, uh, or a sketching from uh, uh, real objects, um, they are um, indispensable in that discussion. So that's how my dissertation topic came about. Now, I, um, 
I belong to the generation of art history students, I think, um, who are very fascinated by the issue of um, visuality, you know, modes and the ways of seeing. Um, something peculiar about my training may be my supervisor, um, Douglas Nichol, is actually not a China specialist, but a photography historian. Um, I was very lucky that he was willing to take me on. And he <laughs> also firmly believes in, I guess, um, uh, an earlier um, um, aspiration for art historians to believe uh, ways of seeing is simultaneously always um, uh, ways of being and ways of feeling. Um, so he pushed me and encouraged me, actually, less than push, I guess, encouraged me to push the uh, question of my dissertation as far as I would like to. And uh, um, I think that's why, I mean, simultaneously, it was a very gratifying run. It was a fascinating journey, but um, it was also um, uh, caused some challenges <laughs> when I eventually want to kind of contain it into a um, presentable shape um, as, a, as a dissertation and a book. Um, so other than uh, Doug, um, uh, Julia Angel, Professor Julia Angel, um, who's a renowned um, uh, modern Chinese art uh, scholar, is my external committee member. I think she and uh, uh, Professor Shen Kui Yi, who is also um, a colleague in the field and uh, um, and their uh, life partners, um, and they both gave me a lot of support um, to, in a way, significantly compensate the fact that I don't have a modern Chinese art person on my committee. I was also lucky enough to have Max Wislogi at the time at Brown. Um, he is a cultural historian of Cultural, sorry, cultural historian of um, uh, modern China. And uh, when I studied with him, that was also a moment. There was kind of a, this explosion of Republican uh, cultural history. Um, so I think even though maybe in my book, in the end, I didn't quote every single thing we read and discussed together, I think that foundation was also important um, in my making, I guess. Thank you so much. And I, I was remiss, I did not mention when I introduced you, you're also a co-editor of TransAsia Photography, which is a really exciting, newly relaunched publication right in the field. Um, but let us go back to Chinese ways of seeing an open air painting, the a Harvard East Asia monograph, a beautifully published art history book with many illustrations. Um, can you tell us then more specifically, having hearing now about your dissertation, how the book has come together, where it intervenes in the field. As you say, the Republican field has been uh, documented in recent years, but I think your book is is filling a gap, right, in terms of our understanding of really this, this interaction, this very active intermedial interaction between various ways of seeing, um, various ocular modes. So if you could tell us how you are rethinking the study of modern Chinese art, and also a little bit about the materials and methodology that you have chosen uh, to do that. Yes, thank you. Um, the question is perfect, actually, because um, it allows me to talk about a major development of the book project. When I, um, as I mentioned, when I was a PhD student, my field is really essentially Republican China. Um, so after I arrived at U of T, um, um, it's a very different intellectual environment compared to 
Brown University, where I came from, um, Brown is a, a, a fantastic but a relatively small intellectual community with a very small number of China studies scholars. Um, U of T is <laughs> enormous. Um, we have a large cohort of East Asian studies scholars. So um, after I arrived there, um, I began to present my work, and many of them actually uh uh, challenged me um, uh, in a good way. Um, you know, uh, well, I will name one of them, uh, Yiqing Wu, actually. Um, I often blame him for how long my book um, took. Um, he said, well, it's all great, the, um, the kind of optical turn you described, how Chinese modern painters embraced um, devices like uh, view-taking or composition or linear perspective. But he said, as a historian, we all know um, what kind of um, political turmoil 20th century China went through, right? So how about the Sino-Japanese War? How about the Civil War? How about the PRC? You know, how does your narrative of art making relate to that? Um, so I really, um, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I'm very grateful to that intervention. Um, it wasn't easy to expand the project um, because it's not just to add a few components um, of what happened in the during the war years and the, the during the um, PRC, but it it also forced me to reconceptualize. So my initial uh, dissertation is actually a. I think a fairly straightforward argument, which is how the um, optics, um, optical vision um, influenced the way Chinese painters uh, uh, perceived and depicted nature. However, um, in the end, as you um, probably remember, my book argues not for an optical turn. Um, I was actually explicit in saying it. It's not an optical turn, but it is an ocular turn. So instead of one way of looking and one epistemology, um, you know, represented by uh, uh, Euro-American uh, perspectivalism, replacing the Chinese modes of seeing, it is actually multiple um the components from multiple ways of seeing how that was reconfigured um, through 20th century China, reconfigured again and again, and in the end, um, kind of created this unprecedented emphasis on perception, right? Um, and how, um, who was looking, um, what it means to see as a Chinese painter, what is the proper way to see the the landscape, the nature, and the land of China. That became the central question. So, um, so uh, the book was um, um, uh, evolved um, in a way in resonance with many similar attempts to break the um, 49 divide. And I think in my case, even though it it took much longer um, to, to turn the, um, a, a manuscript into a book, but in the end, I'm quite happy with with that move because ultimately it pushed me to tell a story even though much more complicated but much more um, complete and meaningful I think yeah your book is full of really fascinating characters and the works that they produced uh, I, I remember one of the things you mentioned is that these are not necessarily people who have been remembered into the canon these days but there are people whose work was very significant and um 
applies to the argument that you're making. So I look forward to hearing more about those protagonists as we move through the rest of the book. But perhaps we can start with a more abstract protagonist, the modern Chinese painter, right? That's your the first chapter of your book. Uh, so who is this figure? How does he emerge? And I let you know before we started our interview that I am particularly interested in the role of travel and how travel and new travel infrastructures helped create this type of personality in China. Oh, great. Um, Julie, I also want to apologize. I think I um, didn't fully address your last question, which is so wonderfully um, put together. Um, but I think it can be tied into this one, which is, um, you know, the, the figure of modern Chinese art, artist. Um, as we know, um, the writing on um, 20th century Chinese art has been going on for a while. And uh, um, by this point, we already have many individual um lives, uh, the uh, contours of which are fairly clear, right? And uh, we have um, uh, a few um, fantastic groundbreaking books, um, including um, those groundbreaking uh, catalogs um, uh, uh, Julia and Kuei um, uh, did um, uh, about a decade ago um, to kind of, in a way, uh, set up the periodization of uh, 20th century Chinese art. In the end, my book didn't challenge the periodization. It actually, if anything, confirms that. Um, however, uh, what uh, when I started uh, to do research of this project, one thing amazed me um, are the many um, names um, uh, now uh, not, not only not in the canon or standard narrative in the English lens, uh, language scholarship, but also uh, rarely mentioned, at least at the time when I was writing my work. Um, and, uh, and so when you dive into the primary materials of um, uh, Republican China and PRC China, you uh, immediately encounter a very different word, right? So part of the um, uh, part of the um, primary materials um, I use for this book, they're not um, standard um, uh, 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 library collections, but instead they're um, uh, catalogs, um, uh, in a way, uh, treatises and uh, trade books, um, basically how-to manuals for artists. And also, most importantly, textbooks, um, even textbooks for grade schools um, during Republican era. So um, those materials I collected um, from uh, secondhand um, book market. Um, I know Julia yourself has amassed a significant um, alternative collection. I think it's very interesting um, how that component is almost uh, necessary um, for us to construct a more um, uh, um, uh, to construct a, uh, an idea of the art world that's closer um, to what was happening back then. So the um, the modern artist, um, we rarely actually think about what it means um, to be a painter in modern China. Um, I cannot emphasize enough the um, the demise of the or the change, the challenges, the role of a modern artist um, in China, because um, with the overthrown of the imperial dynasty, um, with the constant um, challenges, attacks on the traditional mode of uh, literati elite way of living um, and uh, uh, commissioning art, um, you know, who still um, has the right or has the training to appreciate art, to make art, to commission art, um, they all became a question. 
So the people that's featured in my first chapter, they're, um, well, some of them are still um, remembered as renowned painters, such as Liu Haisu. But most importantly, they function uh, on my pages uh, uh, as um, art educators, as people who significantly not only change the way professional artists are trained, but also the way how um, every regular uh, educated Chinese um, are trained uh, 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 visually. Right, so they really launched a very significant um, reforms in grade, at grade school level. Um, so, as a way to make um, the ability to sketch in from real objects as into uh, this fundamental necessary cognitive skill for modern uh, citizens who are capable of scientific inquiry. So that's a very important component. I think in the um, STS studies, um, many scholars have raised the question of, oh, we have the kind of intellectual history strand, um, people talking about how certain ideals or how certain um, scientific principles was brought, introduced to China. And then uh, we have the kind of uh, um, uh, uh, the actual making of uh, scientific objects or the actual um, industrialization or um, uh, marketization of certain technologies. However, the middle part, right, how certain ideas was promoted and became a common sense knowledge um, for everyone, every at least the educated um, Chinese people, that's something that's missing. So in a way, my work is very much trying to have dialogue with, with that. Um, and uh, your mention of travel, I think the um, the, the fascinating thing about these modern um, artists is their role um, is they, in a way, they're showing their fellow citizens how to be modern. So I think open air painting had such a prominent position, partly because you know the sight of artists paint, painting in parks, you know, by West Lake. Um, that's there, there. You almost couldn't find better um, um, promotion um, for this new idea that artists, first and foremost, were professionals, modern professionals who grasped the, the ability to depict things faithfully um, from nature through a direct encounter. And uh, um, there, um, the um, organized the school trips, which became a standard a component in art school curriculum, uh, those open air uh, 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 painting tours, um, was kind of linked with um, the uh, new urbanites, um, new middle classes um, desire to see the nation, partly thanks to the newly available um, railway um, transportation, uh, bus network, and also the newly kind of emergent um, tourism business. So I think all these are combined to both um, secure the understanding of what modern painter is and also the, the image of modern painter helped to promote that idea of a modern citizen. You know, scientifically savvy, um, familiar with the territory of the land and eager to be out there with their physical body. Yeah, uh, actually, one of my favorite images in the book, no offense to the actual painters, but is the cover of the textbook about um, Ai Meisheng Xue Huaji, right? Which is a, really a children's manual, maybe not a manual, maybe a textbook, but um, this this beautiful idyllic image of a, a child painting surrounded by other children painting. Um, if, if I were to publish your book, that would be my cover for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but that's perhaps I'm just a little bit more whimsical than the editors at Harvard. Uh, so um, building off of this this last point that you made about citizens becoming more savvy viewers um, and the infrastructure allowing people to go to these places, uh, you know, that's one type of tool that changes perception in a way. Um, but what about other types of perceptual tools. In, in chapter two, you really talk about these new ideas of how to compose, organize, uh, paint, essentially. Um, and you pair that with some discussion of these perceptual tools, which I find uh, really fascinating. You know, the things that the artists had to bring with them to learn how to draw from nature. So yeah, uh, I invite your answer to that question. It was fascinating for me back then to encounter uh, many of the discussions on how helpless and uh, um, unable <laughs> the uh, young art students and the painters felt when they were, um, you know, put out in nature. Um, so in other words, the ability to paint um, open air painting is not something that's um, uh, natural or um, you know, we're born with, but instead it actually relies along um, tradition and the lineology um, and the technologies of looking. Um, so in this chapter, I looked at um, a few um, terms which we still use in our almost in our daily language, right? Um, Xu Jing, view taking, um, go to composition um, and the linear perspective, um, tou shi. So um, those were all um, modes to organize um, your vision um, so that you could effectively turn a three-dimensional view um, onto a legible two-dimensional landscape painting. So uh, many of the um, devices they used, um, they were not only, um, you know, for instance, the view-taking frame, um, it was um, there was a this um, kind. I would call that the undercurrents of um, a global um, art exchanges. Um, so, the, for instance, the view taking device um, is it was. Um, I guess it was invented by British uh, watercolorists and uh, promoted by them, um, enthusiastically embraced by Japanese watercolorists, who I would like to emphasize uh, often considered kind of uh, amateurs. So they're slightly different from the um, uh, particularly famous oil painters we are familiar with uh, in uh, uh, modern Japanese um, art history. So these watercolorists, their writings um, were translated by Chinese um, students who studied in Japan. So it's very fascinating. They chose not to translate, you know, their standard, what they learn in the academy, but instead it's these essentially amateur materials. They found the most relevant um, to their um, uh, fellow painters uh, back in China. So I really want to emphasize in a way when we talk about, you know, modernist art and all modern art and its other um, in our attempts to kind of really um, problematize um, the idea of um, uh, modernism, the idea the, the canon of modern art and the history writing of modern art, not just in the Chinese context, but globally, we also need to recognize um, some of these um, almost, almost um, um, I guess, in the very strict hierarchy of fine art um, genres, um, figures, um, contributions, innovations, that's normally considered a slightly low. <laughs> it's not particularly on the cutting edge of the art world. It's not about um, uh, 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 originality or innovation, but it's more about um, other things, um, uh, kind of a democratic 
kind of a, a to promoting art to people who otherwise might not have access to it. Um, it's not all emancipatory, let me emphasize. However, I think those undercurrents have received far less attention than they deserve. As my case, I, I hope, as the case of um, Chinese open air painting could show, um, you know, these significant um, uh, objects and the people who made that circulation, who made the um, dominance in a way of open air painting in China possible, are those who are not um, in any um, textbook um, of art history, both, um, you know, Chinese or um, um, British, American, Japanese, right? So, so that's one thing I would like to emphasize. Um, what's the other uh, of your question uh, on this chapter, I'm sorry. No, I think you answered you answered what I asked, and I, I have to apologize. I know I ask compound questions, but those are only an indication about of my excitement in your book. Uh, but I do have a second question for this chapter, um, and that that is a question about what kind of Chinese painting was the appropriate kind. Um, so Westlake emerges as an object of fascination, but also as a sort of difficulty. It is too too pretty, right? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that masculinization of yes. open air painting yes. that you described here? Thank you very much. I sometimes kick myself. I think when I was writing the book, um, I was uh, a little bit coy in a way, a little bit shy to engage explicitly um, with, um, let's say, um, discussions in post-colonial studies or discussions in critical gender studies. But many of the issues, even you know, in my kind of uh, very empirical, um, data-heavy style of um, narration, it's already very clear there is a um, uh, the the rise of the nation state, the consolidation of its image is a, is a highly gendered endeavor. Um, so starting from the second chapter, and you will see the same theme uh, coming up again and again is how um, you know the uh, what is a proper. Um, what is the proper landscape um, understood by 20th century Chinese painters and viewers and critics is 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 it's a um, I think I use the term uh, masculine uh, majesty um, so it has to be grand um, uh, therefore West Lake which for various reasons I, I don't know whether we're running out of time but um, I'm trying to be okay so for instance West Lakes um, because the you know the lake is such a um, big span of just the waters. So in other words, um, when, what's troubling the oil painters um, is the middle ground, which is considered a very, very important, that should be the um, uh, highlight of your composition, is really this flat surface of water. And they were deeply troubled by it, and they couldn't find a way to make the uh, the natural uh, view more uh, dramatic, uh, more awe-inducing, essentially, uh, more monumental um, than it could be. So instead, um, uh, the the sudden um, fascination with Mount Huang, um, it's really uh, a mountainous regions. It's not one hill, but it's the the. I think the unique thing about the topography of that region is because there are so many hills um, in proximity to each other. So when you are standing on one of them, you actually can see the sort of um, uh, layers of mountains, right? That's so favored by monumental landscape painting, let's say from the Song Dynasty and Yuan Dynasty. So um, the painters were really in love with Mount Huang because it allowed them to um, see, I want to 
put uh, quotation marks around the sea, you know, kind of physically in real life, um, the 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 um, the most glor- glorial, uh, glorified um, representation of Chinese landscape, and that um, desire for something. Uh, grand, uh, dominating, uh, monumental, um, and uh, the painters and the critics themselves, they were not... they were not even subtle. They made it very clear. Mount Huang is this, you know, handsome uh, young military hero um, that, you know, other landscapes like West Lake should marry to. So they really use those like a bizarre, almost a creepy um, uh, uh, metaphors, right? So that gendered, um, is a gendered idea of aesthetics and that highly, that, that, that um, um, prevailing, prevalent um, uh, admiration uh, among artists for that particular um, aesthetic um, uh, effect, I think is very important. Um, I try to include um, or um, uh, discuss female artists when I see fit in this book, but I think um, for a kind of a more um, for, to, to add a gendered dimension into art history, I think in a way the, um, the kind of uh, gendered um, uh, critical discourse is equally important um, to see how certain ideas was really running deep. It doesn't even matter um, it's the male painter or female painter. All of them were in a way suppressed and shaped and molded by that ideal. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll note for our listeners who would be readers that this section also includes a really uh, detailed, close readings, uh, visual analysis of paintings that are trying to reconcile this monumental old form with the demands of perspective. So there's some paintings that um, you really, the cracks and fissures of this of this meeting point emerge. Um, and perhaps that that's a perfect transition to chapter three, uh, literally the heart of the book because we have one, two, three, four, five chapters. Um, and the chapter, which for me, perhaps I, I feel the the argument of your book emerging um, most clearly, or the intervention, at least this idea of inventing tradition, right? So we have a very clear accepted story about um, what Guohua is. Um, but can you tell us then how your chapter, your book, shows the ways in which um, both perspective and um, tun, right, which is a a, a type of um, painting painting strategy, not strategy. Oh, I'm I'm running out of words. Um, technique, yes, that that is associated with uh, quote unquote traditional painting, and how both of those um, in the work of various both writers of treatises, but also in the practice of um, artists as well as teachers um, are written back in order to naturalize this ocular turn. Yes. So um, I, I want to start with a little anecdote. Um, when I was a graduate student, when I presented my work on um, open-air painting, um, for those of you in the audience, um, um, the, the Chinese term for that is often actually xieshen, even though the full term might be yewai xieshen, shiwai xieshen, fenjing xieshen, but they are often used as the um, uh, abbreviate, abbreviated form uh, xieshen. And on more than occasions, I'm not joking or making this up, on more than occasions, uh, more than one occasions, I was challenged by people in the audience and they would say, what are you talking about? Xieshen is not new. You know, Chinese painting is Xieshen. Uh, Chinese landscape painting had this Xieshen tradition for thousands of years. So um, why would people, you know, there, I 
at that moment, I wasn't doing much public outreach. So it was uh, mostly academic audiences, right? So this, I think this, the, 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 the reason that um, it, it took quite some efforts to show, uh, no, actually traditional Chinese painters do not paint um, open air, um, almost at all. <laughs> and uh, it was a really a new um, practice and a new discourse uh, really validated in the 20th century. Um, it, it, you know, it actually takes us efforts to prove that a very, in a way, a kind of a fairly simple fact, um, really testifies to how successful the uh, 20th century Chinese uh, uh, art historians, um, art writers, um, theorists were when they try to reclaim open air painting as a part of inherent um, tradition uh, within um, Chinese culture itself. So um, I, in this chapter, I try to discuss how history was, it's not even rewritten at that moment because we do need to remember uh, the 1920s and 1930s was the moment when um, kind of modern understanding of um, art history writing kind of um, became um, um, popular and embraced in China, right? So it was not even rewriting the history, but it was really the um, the um, uh, art history writing in China actually originated at a moment when the tension around the open air painting was such that the anxiety of writers over whether China ever had open air painting was um, deeply um, uh, was one of the shaping forces of their own conception um, of Chinese art history. So um, I, I try to show how uh, some of the, um, in a way, most the canonical uh, earlier writings on Chinese art, um, for instance, um, uh, uh, Zheng Wuchang's um, uh, survey of Chinese art history is actually, I, I myself was even surprised at the time. I didn't realize how much um, open-air painting was <laughs> really, basically he was structuring the book based on open-air painting. Um, and uh, the, I'm really glad, um, Julie, Julia, you mentioned the twin models. So uh, that is a technique of how um, artists um, uh, depict the textures of rocks. Um, I think it's a um, uh, sometimes my um, some of my colleagues, when they assign my book to undergraduate students, they ask me which part I would assign. And uh, I look around, I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, for the lens of undergraduate reading, the section on twin models is actually good because even though it sounds like a really... Um, a kind of specialized niche knowledge on Chinese painting, um, but it's a very good example of how history writing, um, scientific knowledge, um, artistic practice, um, and um, modes of understanding um, kind of you know reshape each other at one given historical moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I really have to reiterate all of the book itself is very tightly wrought also insofar as that you are also showing us repeatedly in across each chapter how how these modes interact with each other. Um, so I'll keep it in my head that that's the section to assign for undergraduate teaching. Um, but it is it is one of many, I think, that, that very artfully puts that to us. Uh, so perhaps having invented tradition or really written it for the first time as a modern discipline. Um, let's move back to history. Uh, chapter four is really about this brutal moment of Chinese history, right? The war. And this chapter is really told through uh, one protagonist that there are some other minor 
characters. Um, but clearly the, the the hero here is Guan Shanye, who is uh, emerges from a humble background um, and tries repeatedly to invent and reinvent ways of depicting the trauma of wartime. Um, so can you tell us how he does that and what that has to do again with this imperative to paint landscape? Yes. Um, one thing I tried to do in this book, I don't know whether I succeeded, is I kept thinking how to, you know, as an art historian, how to look at the painters, right? Um, you know, art history is often uh, sometimes praised, sometimes criticized for art historians' adoring gaze at the artworks and the figures behind them. Um, in my approach to the many, many uh, characters who show up in this book, um, I try to be sympathetic. I try to really contextualize them in their um, historical surroundings, but I also want to maintain um, critical because, um, um, as I probably should have mentioned earlier, one one thing I try to achieve in this book is to um, to complicate um, how do we understand artists, how do we understand the creativity, right? How do we understand artistic innovation? So Guan Shangye is precisely um, the reason, there, are, there were actually multiple reasons um, that prompted me to anchor my discussion on wartime China um, on one artist. Um, and uh, it's funny, when I was um, receiving reviews, external reviews, when the book was under review, um, and uh, later um, when other uh, book reviews came out, I can see it's actually, a, people have very different uh, feed, you know, response. So some think it's successful, some think, oh, this chapter is a bit odd because, you know, none of the others is human, like it's you know, focused on one artist. So, so, so let me explain that decision a little bit more. Um, um, you know what? I'm going to take a, a, a turn to to the pragmatic issues of image permissions for any of us who work on um, 20th century materials. Um, it was um, because my previous the previous chapters, most of them rely on. Um, Pub, uh, publications. So the image, uh, the you know, so so I I knew even when I was um, working on the dissertation, the image permission would not be a headache. Now when I move into the later period and kind of work more on artists' work. Um, any one of us who uh, write about 20th century painting uh, know the headache and the almost the impossibility of <laughs> of, um, of 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 getting um, um, high resolution images and image permissions. So part of the reason I focus on Guan Shangyue is because um, in my field works um, in China, uh, trying to um, enter different museums, seeing uh, collections, I. The Guan Shangyue Museum, uh, because it's, um, let me emphasize, it's one of a very small handful of public museums in China where the researchers in the museum actually have access to the museum collection. Now, that's a mind-blowing concept for those of us who work more in the, uh, you know, uh, you uh, in the anglophone context uh, where um, public museums uh, uh, um, consider it one of their responsibilities to be open to researchers, right? But in China, it's, it's a very different story. So um, at Guanshanyue, because um, some of the museum staffs um, are amazing researchers themselves, so I have more 
possibility to actually see the actual paintings. And uh, um, as you might be able to tell, some of the visual analysis that's required um, for these works, actually, I would not be able to write them without um, having, you know, observed, um, studied those paintings closely in person. So that's one kind of mundane <laughs> aspect of the decision. But another, I think, a more important decision is I really want to show um you know, in a way, it is the, the story of this book. In a way, it's a sad story. I think a depressing story. I'm sorry for saying that. Um, is really about how even before the nation state had uh, this mandatory grasp or control of artists, Chinese artists themselves already embraced um, the duty to represent um, the nation, the, the, the homeland in certain fashion. So I want to show how, through one artist, how that was shaped, right? So it's not the state's um, pressure. In a way, it's the pressure from from peers, right? From uh, fellow artists, from critics. Um, so when initially, when Guan Shangyue started, um, he, you know, kind of did his um, innovation and uh, tried to be date, you know, depicted the war, but he was heavily criticized for one of his earlier exhibitions because the fellow um, artists and the, the art community people uh, considered his um, depiction of the nation state not majestic, not um, resilient, not xiongzhuang, not, you know, not grand and strong enough, right? So you can see how actually an artist who retained his artistic integrity and uh, um, autonomy, but nonetheless, drastically changed the way um, he worked, right? Like uh, the, the later um, paintings he did, uh, no matter it's the depiction of um, um, uh, the um, non-Han people in the borderland, the, the, the landscape of uh, northwestern China, or his depiction of the, in the you know, kind of the uh, uh, land of um, uh, salt production in Zigong, Sichuan, those all, I think, direct response to the pressure um, from the art community to depict, to kind of essentially create an image of a strong uh, 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 homeland before the homeland was even strong. So, um, yeah, so I I really had fun uh, working on it. I think for any uh, one of us um, who whose study on culture um, happened after the so-called um, single-person-based uh, monograph, um, I think it's still sometimes a treat and almost a necessary exercise um, to focus on one person and to see how that leads you. So I'm I'm grateful to have that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, and as you say yourself, I have it here um, excerpted. Um, it's not really one painter's story of becoming, right? It does actually echo uh, this process that you describe and in a way uh, sets us up for the last chapter of the book, right? Because these uh, artists who are often considered in the People's Republic to be working under the auspices of the state, but also oppressed by state ideology. Uh, those processes started before the founding of the nation. Uh, and they also leave us, if we understand them with more complexity and nuance, they actually leave openings and different ways of imagining aesthetic forms vis-a-vis -vis the nation. Uh, I will let you fill in the blanks of how we get there. But the book, the, the main body of the book, it ends with this fascinating figure, uh, Another protagonist, although this chapter is full of uh, other artists who are working in the post-49 period, but I want you to, to lead us up to and tell us about Wu Guanzhong, who is uh, coming back actually from 
Europe and then from Hong Kong and settling in socialist China to create art that does something quite different precisely because the state doesn't want art to do something different from what it wants. Yeah, I um, when, um, I, I spent quite some time in a way to educate myself um, on PRC art. I mean, I, of course, I did the um, necessary readings when I was a graduate student, but it's one thing that, you know, you know, your knowledge of PRC as a Republican person, as a Republican scholar, um, it's another thing when you want to truly break the 49 uh, break, uh, divide, right? So, so in a way, when I look at, uh, at least at, um, at that time when I was working on this book, and now I actually, particularly the past two or three years, we see a lot more new publications came out to uh, problem problematize that kind of ossified view. But at the time, I think it's you're almost kind of caught in this impasse. So either you imagine uh, socialist art is this, you know, well, many people use the highly problematic term propaganda as a way to kind of uh, this umbrella term um, as if um, the artists were transparent vehicles through which the state could um, transmit their, um, uh, uh, transfer their um, propagandist materials. Or actually the past decade, we start to see an opposite um, approach, which is essentially um, saying that uh, um, socialist China saw the most uh, um, creative moment <laughs> of Chinese artists, right? Which is, I, I think, highly problem problematic. But I think ultimately the problem of um, this is a uh, we lack a nuanced understanding of um, creativity, artistic innovation, stylistic breakthrough, and state control. So in this chapter, I look at this moment when um, the state's call for artists to create works that's effectively powerful became, um, in, it, it is really in a way um, relentless, almost a brutal um, demand to constantly reinvent yourself. So we see this really fascinating phenomenon. On one hand, the state's demand for artists in a way aligned with the artist's self expectation, right? In a way, artists themselves always wanted a stylistic breakthrough. But at the same time, um, the uh, that space that's created um, for artistic innovation um, sometimes um, kind of give birth to things that's very much against the state's um, uh, point of view. For instance, Wu Guanzhong, I, I could not um, end the main body of the book with a kind of depressing note. So I put Wu Guanzhong in a way as an outlier, right? He never, he's much more um, kind of, he, uh, well, let me think how to put it in a, in a good way, he retained more of a sense of autonomy and integrity than many uh, fellow artists were able to. I mean, uh, so yeah, I think that's a fair statement. But um, so I want to show, I, I tried to show both how his way of open air painting um, was a direct uh, kind of, um, uh, he found this loop in the state's demand um, to do uh, a type of open air painting that was in a way discreetly championing his belief in form um, uh, more than content, right? But at the same time, I also want to emphasize partly because of this long trajectory of how artists form themselves, how the um, understanding of uh, proper a way of seeing wars um, throughout 20th century China. So even for Guanzhong, um, who wants to 
you know, hold on to something that's individual, um, that individuality, as he defined it, is highly nationalist. Um, so, and and as we see, nationalist is always, you know, it's always very easily um, hijacked and uh, distorted into something else, right? So, so we can see. So, I, I, I really am happy that you highlight Wu Guanzhong because I, I was very happy when I realized, oh, I could end the book with Wu Guanzhong because, um, in a way, um, he both kind of show a little bit hope and <laughs> um, room for um, 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 breathing, <laughs> but at the same time, also warn us of the limits. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But the book doesn't quite end there. We do have an epilogue and it is uh, kind of thinking about how this legacy of open air painting has survived in contemporary times. And you have two very different types of approaches to, uh, let's say, this tradition that since since the socialist period has also be- become infused with this idea of going out to experience, right? Going out from the urban centers where artists are to experience the real China. Um, so we have the total art of Qiu Zhijie, and we also have these ossified open air painting uh, locations. And you can probably tell from my choice of words, uh, which is inspired by your own choice of words, uh, where our sympathies lie. So if you could tell us a little bit about the opposition between those two approaches. Yes. Um... I, um, as I mentioned to you um, in a different conversation, I was really happy to be able to write about the. So, so in a way, um, Qiu Zhijie, who is a very renowned contemporary artist and probably even more influential as an art educator, um, at least, um, I mean, you know, as any contemporary artist, they're still evolving, right? Like uh, my comments of some of his recent work might be very different and some of his recent endeavors and, uh, um, prom, you know, um, ideas might be very different from my comments of him in this book. Let us, you know, let me make that clear. But when I was um, writing the book, um, initially I was thinking about ending it in, uh, uh, ending it with Qiu Zhijie because you can see um, I attended uh, the Shanghai Biennial, which was, um, Qiu Zhijie was the uh, main curator uh, in 2012. Um, that was uh, the large chunk of the book was um, finalized. Um, and so Chou was very important in the sense that um, as a faculty member in one of the most prestigious art academies, the China um, Academy of Art, based in Hangzhou, um, he was able to roll out, along with a few uh, very talented colleagues of his, uh, roll out this new program. Basically, um, they call that total art, but essentially it's uh, uh, their attempt to teach research-based art making in Chinese art academy, which is still very much kind of um, the dominant mode of teaching at that time was still uh, the sort of uh, uh, European academy training on naturalistic uh, representation that's filtered through Soviet Union and uh, continued throughout the PRC until this day, right? So they were trying to ask students not to just kind of emphasize on the um, uh, uh the very similitude of their depiction, but instead to think, to critically um, reflect on the way they look, um, what informed their looking. Um, I think in uh, in the epilogue I mentioned about their how they 
took students to um, uh, to a field trip to uh, Tibet, and their approach was very different from the previous um, artists who depicted the land and the people uh, in Tibet, as I discussed in the previous chapters. So it was a really kind of a happy ending. But of course, um, by the time I could um, submit the full manuscript to the press, um, it was. Um, um, much later, I was able to add the second half, which which is the um, I really love that part. Actually, um, is the essentially the business of open air painting, right? So, um, uh, just long story short, um, since two since nineteen ninety eight, because of the um, drastic expansion of higher education in China, so each year actually we have roughly well in one province in Hubei province alone. Um, even just a few years ago, every year you have 40,000 students who needed to do open air painting. So, you know, this, this type of, um, uh, uh, the scale of this um, gave birth to um, uh, open-air painting bases, which essentially was these uh, bizarre um, establishment where um, students could be set there free within the um, parameters of these bases um, and depicting uh picturesque, very um, lyrical landscape without any trace of the realities or um, traumas or complexities of contemporary China, right? So in a way, it's really the opposite of what um, Qiu Zhijie, at least an earlier moment of him, um, tried to do, which is to really force young students to confront realities. So looking is knowing and looking is reflecting, but no, now it's um, the, the at least the dominant mode is a very different type. And uh, it was um, really a kind of a happy <laughs> collaboration between the party state to the um, the private owners of these uh, bases and also the um, artists and art teachers and the students, I guess. So you can see how, in a way, it's not something that's tragic because no one was unhappy, but I'm hoping to show... Um, the tragedy <laughs> behind it, you know, if uh, if the that is that way of looking is uh, imprinted um, and and became the foundation um, for the new generations of artists. Of course, many of them um, went beyond it, but it was it was the mode. So, uh, yeah, it it is a very fascinating ending to your book, and I can only wonder how uh, social media photography might also relate to that story, because I do know there is also a bustling market for that in the Chinese countryside. Um, but so having finished this book, uh, what, where are you going next? Uh, I think you intimated before our interview that this conclusion does bring you somewhat to your next project. So could you tell us about it? Yes, yes. Um, I, I will try to be uh, concise. It's again, I thought I would... Um, have learned some lessons from the first book <laughs> and uh, would have a more, um, let's say, uh, efficient way of writing the second book. It didn't happen. So far, it didn't happen that way. So ever since 2018, I became very interested in this. Um, well, I, I have I was interested in the phenomenon of beautiful countryside campaign uh, since it was first promoted in uh, um, uh you know, the early 2010. So I think it was around the 2015, I started to actively collecting materials about it. Um, so so 
so so but one thing leads to another. Actually, some of the field trip I did um, that you saw in the epilogue of this book was part of my field work on the beautiful countryside campaign. Um, however, so beautiful countryside is um, uh, the state's um, a, a very important, actually, a central um, um, policy platform um, with with significant um, financial uh, support from multiple ministries um, to um, revive, to realize rural revival through um, the uh, in. Uh, through the intervention of the arts and the cultural sector. Um, so initially, one chapter of that book will be on the Digital Countryside Initiative. However, the past year, um, it's fairly new, actually. Now I finally have a um, very settled book chapters and outline, and I'm actually um, uh, just finished a, a draft of the book proposal, and I'm actively um, writing the chapters. Um, I'm working on the media archaeology of the uh, of the Digital Countryside Initiative um, by tying it to the socialist data visualization. So in other words, um, it is the po- I want to show how the politics of numbers, which is discussed a lot by current scholarship on you know, smart cities, even though in the Chinese case, it's the smart villages, and the politics of display, um, both in socialist China in terms of the... Um, uh, the rural exhibitions, um, the various um, uh, um, 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 uh, social surveys, um, uh, the kind of uh, fanatic planning uh, uh, campaigns um, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, and the today's um, digital countryside initiative, you know, the dashboards, the uh, so-called the Di Tian Kong Yi Ti Hua, the um, Earth, Sky, and the Space um, all-inclusive system. So I look at all these contemporary uh, digital platforms um, um, and objects um, uh, and infrastructures um, by uh, showing the stunning. Um, similarity, both in form and in logic, with um, uh, uh, Mouse China. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that, and I'm confident that uh, having read this book, that the, the kind of deep history will emerge there in this new media archaeology. Uh, so, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of this book and immerse yourself in Chinese ways of seeing. <laughs> thank you, Julia. Thank you.